Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Donald Trump is on his Asian tour and we are going to dip our toes back into the world of Trump, the Russian investigation, what's going on there. But this week has also seen another huge dump of information about tax avoidance, the Paradise Papers. And there's a link there with Trump too. We're going to try and pull some of these pieces together. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast, John Lanchester, Mary Beard, and we hope to have some more soon talking about the state of democracy and the state of the world. As well as politics, the LRB has book reviews, essays about art, poetry and exhibitions. Whether you want to get a deeper understanding of world events or just get away from it all and read about Picasso and octopuses, the LRB will have something fascinating for you. I'm joined today by Helen Thompson, who is going to make the link for us later from Trump to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And the Gatsby jacket's back. I, I work for I you. Know. I, know you like, I know you like it. Erin Rapport, who is here to tell us about American foreign policy and a lot of other things too. Gatsby jacket. Okay. I call it my Mater D jacket. But, um, I'd go with Gatsby jacket. Gatsby jacket is better. Gatsby a little more. Yeah. And it's a pleasure to welcome back Andrew Preston, historian of the United States. And we are going to try and piece together the Trump story. But before that, early this morning, I recorded a conversation with Jason Sharman about the Paradise Papers. Jason is Professor of International Relations here in Cambridge. He also happens to be one of the world's leading experts on tax havens and how they work. He knows this stuff inside out. And I started by asking him, was he surprised by anything in these revelations? No, in some ways, it's surprising that things that aren't inherently that interesting, like Bono's ownership or part ownership of a shopping mall in Lithuania, are now regarded as news. I think certainly compared to things in the Panama Papers, where you had words like corruption and tax evasion and And illegality and illegality. In some ways, I think the sense of anticlimax or fatigue is pretty understandable when it comes to these latest leaks. The focus, so it's on Bono, it's on Lewis Hamilton. The way the papers run it is the villains are the people who are trying to legally pay as little tax as possible. Looked at the other way, the, the focus should be on the tax havens, right? If, if there are people here who could change their behaviour in such a way as to really make a difference, because frankly, Lewis Hamilton could have paid VAT on his jet and the world would be the same place it was mm. yesterday. But the Cayman Islands, the Isle of Man the Channel Islands, other Caribbean tax havens. When these things come out, do the people in the... Because you know these places well. Do the people in the Cayman Islands think, oh my God, what are we going to do? Or do they just brush it off? No, they're they're very worried. So they refer to what's called the Grisham effect of when the John Grisham novel, The Firm, was published. It was not only a public relations disaster for them, but in some ways it fed through to their business and a decline in their business. So they're really, really worried about their public profile. Really? That, so that I didn't know that. So you'd feel that it's in a John Grisham novel and it would be good for business because, yes, yeah, some people would be put off, but other people would be wa- like, wow. No, you, you could... well, I think that's what's changed. I mean, you can see a James Bond film, uh, someone stashes their money in the Caymans, uh, they're really gnashing their teeth at this. Popular culture and media coverage really ruins their whole day. So I think offshore there's a feeling of both indignation that 
there's not that much to this, that really it's a bit of a beat up. But no, they're very far from shrugging their shoulders. They're really concerned about this kind so of adverse media coverage. So all publicity is bad publicity? For the last 10 or 15 years, pretty much, yes. But it doesn't change the way that they regulate their own financial systems, does it? I mean, the thing is, they don't want people to know, apart from the people they do want to know, sort of off stage. But the pressure here does not seem to be sufficient to affect the kind of change. Because the other people clearly who are in the firing line here are the British government or the American government. So people either want Bono to change his behaviour or they want Theresa May to change her behaviour. But the real question is, what would change the behaviour of the people who run the Cayman Islands? Well, in some ways, I mean, the people who run the Cayman Islands are what do people want. I mean, people's financial details are secret, but only in the same sense that you have money in a bank account. I have money in a bank account, and that information is private, at least until it's leaked from someone. And that's whether you hold the money in a bank account in Cambridge or London or the Caymans or the Isle of Man. So to a certain extent, that's not terribly strange. The banking secrecy in most tax havens is no stronger than you would get in Britain or any other OECD country. And the fact that rich people arrange their tax affairs to pay less tax rather than more, in some ways is not that shocking, particularly since they're doing it in a way that's legal. And of course, the response from Britain and other countries would be, if they don't like the effects the tax laws they pass have, they should probably change their tax laws. So when we talk about they there, you mean... They Britain, they onshore countries. Governments onshore often play a double game of decrying tax avoidance and at the same time writing laws that unintentionally or intentionally allow, in some cases favour, exactly the practices that they then condemn when we have, as you say, these regular series of leaks which now are running one every year, one every 18 months. If you take someone like the Isle of Man, the Isle of Man is technically as it were, part of UK jurisdiction, but it has, and the UK is responsible for its defence and its foreign policy, Mm -hmm. but it has pretty much an independent status in terms of setting its own financial affairs. Mm -hmm. And this is, to me, the most interesting part of this revelation is the account that the BBC provided, a long account of what life is like now on the Isle of Man and just how wealthy a part of Britain it's become insofar as it's a part of Britain. That's a deliberate attempt by an autonomous jurisdiction to make itself better off by providing a location for wealthy people to Mm. avoid taxes in other places. Mm. Is there anything that the British government could do, not in its own tax affairs, but in relation to the tax affairs of the Isle of Man, to get that to change? Yes, it can. And the British government and others indeed have been doing things over the last 10 or 15 years, which is mainly leaning on these small places to first off collect more information on their clients and secondly, be more willing to share it across borders. So in fact, if you're setting up a company in the Isle of Man, you have to provide far more information to the Manx authorities than you do if you're setting up a company in the UK which is in fact far more laxly regulated. So to that extent, really the Isle of Man and others, because since September 11, these tax havens have been in the crosshairs of a variety of international initiatives, they often actually have standards that are higher than equivalent jurisdictions onshore, say the UK, the various states of the United States. So how does that work? If their standards are higher, I don't quite get this. Why are they the ones in the firing line. So say they have higher standards of information and information sharing. Yeah. That doesn't seem to have stopped people from seeing the Isle of Man as the best place to go 
to retain their own money. Partly it's a problem of reputational lag. So if you think of private jets stuffed with cash flying in and that cash having suspicious traces of cocaine, that kind of stuff really did happen in tax havens in the 1990s and earlier. But really since that time, under international pressure, tax havens have really cleaned up their act to a large extent. Now you still have people registering their yachts or private jets or hedge funds in these sorts of places because they have low taxes, in some cases zero taxes. But again, that's not particularly or at least shouldn't be news to the UK authorities. The so-called revelations are really not that new apart from the sense of the celebrity gossip. And obviously part of this with Bono, the, the charge is hypocrisy. I mean, there's, you know, there are certain people, less so with someone like Lewis Hamilton, I think. Yeah. And Lewis Hamilton, it's clear from where he lives. He yeah. lives in Monaco. He doesn't particularly yeah. believe in uh, paying tax, but Bono talks the talk and doesn't seem to walk the walk. So there's that side of it. Yeah. But if the outrage here is a feeling that, so in this case, as you say, it's not corruption, mm-hmm. it's not evasion, it's not illegality, it's avoidance, but people don't want so much tax avoidance, is there a level of information sharing which would make it easier for, say, the British government to say to a company, that money does not belong in this place where you don't pay tax on it, it belongs here because you made it here or you transacted it through here, and we can claim the tax on it. Is there a point at which it should be possible to say this money shouldn't be there? Tax evasion is a crime of secrecy. Tax avoidance is often conducted in plain sight. And so for fighting tax evasion, it's a question of getting information that people would like to keep secret. But for tax avoidance, a lot of this stuff is not secret. Again, it's within the bounds of the law. So in this latest set of leaks, there's probably not that much that the tax authorities of the UK and other jurisdictions either didn't know already or couldn't have found out fairly easily through the existing information exchanges. So this is much more one for celebrity gossip than actually for raising any more tax or putting people in jail for financial crime. So if you take a step back from these revelations and just look at the global tax system and the many politicians who are demanding, for want of a better phrase, a tightening up, you know, mm-hmm. some idea that there is all this money sloshing around the world, avoiding, not evading, but avoiding tax, yeah. often it's been made in one place, but it just gets relocated for the sake of taking advantage of a legal tax regime. Mm-hmm. What would it take, what kind of international cooperation, what kind of institutional reform to get a grip on this problem? Because I, I tend to agree with you, we could have one of these leaks every year till kingdom come, yeah. and it's not really going to change the behaviour that counts. Mm. So what would? I think in some ways the problem is both easier and harder than it's made out to be. Um, It's easier because transparency uh, is much more advanced in financial and fiscal affairs than it was 10 years ago. But it's harder because the problem is largely one of political will rather than tracking down secret information. So going back to the Bono U2 example, the tax story there is not ownership or part ownership of some Lithuanian shopping mall. It's the fact that all of U2's intellectual property was actually located in the Netherlands to take advantage of favourable tax treaty. Now, U2 earn far more on their music catalogue than they do in some small share of a Lithuanian shopping mall. But because the Netherlands doesn't have nice beaches and palm trees, people don't associate it as being a tax haven. 
again, similar sorts of things in Luxembourg, in Ireland, and not least in Britain. So the tendency is to say that the problem is out there in small island states, whereas in fact the problem with tax avoidance is much closer to home. As I say, by inattention or design, governments have designed tax laws in such a way as to allow the rich, well-connected and large corporations to avoid paying the sorts of tax that everyone else does. But what would it take in that U2 example to change that? So the Netherlands would have to make it less attractive for U2 to locate its intellectual property there. What kind of arrangement would have to be undertaken, say, between Ireland, Britain and the Netherlands so that you two paid tax in Ireland? Some of the things that the European Union are doing is trying to regulate or curb the tendency whereby countries, including Britain, compete for mobile investment by giving tax concessions. And the temptation is to say, whether it's you two or rich individuals or corporations, to to grant special tax breaks. And I think the sorts of things that are already happening inside the European Union but need to be advanced is to say this kind of beggar thy neighbour idea of fiscal competition um, can lead to problems of inequality and the kind of fiscal deficits we have in most OECD countries. Then it's hard to believe that Brexit is going to help with that. That's true. Certainly in the case of the UK. If, if the EU is the answer to this problem, then Brexit is part of the problem, not part of the solution. Sure. I mean, I think these things have to be done multilaterally. And there are alternatives. So the EU would be the probably the best way of doing it. But the other one is the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, but also the G20. And to a certain extent that we've had a real sea change in tax affairs and international tax policy, it's been because of the G20 and the reforms that have been pushed there. So previously there was a lot of information that was just very hard to get. Now, as I say, tax authorities pretty much have their run of this information, even if it's not usually made public, except, of course, when we have these annual leaks. Are you optimistic? Say we come back to this in five years' time, the leaks will still continue. Or maybe the newspapers will realise that this isn't a way to sell newspapers past a certain point, if there still are newspapers in five years' time. But the story itself, do you think there will have been a, a significant change? I think there already has been, and this will continue. And I think this is one of the things that's underappreciated in the current rash of stories, in that tax havens now are not at all what they were 20 years ago. And in some sense, the battle has been won against keeping jurisdictions that openly advertise themselves as hosts for criminal money. That is now unthinkable. Now, what's much less likely to change is that rich people and large corporations will be able to use the political influence they enjoy uh, in order to cut out special tax deals from themselves. Now, that's a problem, but it's not a problem of tax havens. Uh, it's a problem of the way politics works more generally. And a problem of human nature. Indeed. One last question. There's a political bit to this story, and we're going to pick up on it in a second, which is the Wilbur Ross mm. Russian connection. There are lots of Russian connections out there. Is there anything in that one? Because he's more or less said there's nothing to see here. This is mm. People know this is the kind of thing that goes on all the time. The fact it's Russia doesn't matter here or there. But is there anything just looked at from your perspective? Is there anything in that part of the story that stands out either politically or in relation to these kinds of more routine affairs? 
Again, it seems a bit strained and tenuous. So it's the uh, his holding in uh, Navigator, this firm specialising in shipping for hydrocarbon, and the relationship with a Russian firm, and in turn the relationship of this Russian firm to Gennady Timchenko, a friend of Putin's who's under sanctions and Putin's son-in-law. So it's a little bit of a six degrees of separation game. If you link someone to a company, to another company, to another person, that creates a very wide radius and you start scooping up some, some unsavory people there. But compared to the Panama Papers, the links are pretty indirect and pretty tenuous. I'm not someone who would generally speak up in favour of members of the Trump cabinet. But in this case, I think they're probably right. And this is not the sort of thing that's going to excite Robert Mueller in his investigations of the various members of the Trump team. It seems relatively innocuous to me. Who knows? Maybe more information will come out. But what's there so far? Not really that exciting. Yeah, I mean, they've been leaking it, releasing this information day by day. It's clearly a journalistic strategy there's a danger of the fatigue even never mind the fact we had this a year ago but this has been going on for five days now and I've started to stop reading past the headlines it seems implausible that they're holding something back for the end Surely you put your big story up I agree. I I think the rule is that you start off with your best stories first and then in reading this for the first two minutes I thought Wow, this is rather anticlimactic. This is the best you've got? How are you going to string this out for a week? Yeah, I scanned for my favourite words, which are evasion, corruption, sanctions. They weren't there. There was a lot of avoidance. And I thought, hmm, if you're leading with avoidance, this is a sign that you're going to be stretching. For an offshore nerd such as me, this is very interesting. And indeed, this information is probably much more useful for scholars than it is for journalists because it describes the fairly unglamorous, unsexy, everyday business of offshore But for a journalist, it's really hard work. There's a lot of information. It's not inherently that interesting. So you really have to work at getting a headline. You really have to talk about Bono. (laughs) You really have to get some celebrities in there. Jason Charman's latest book is The Despot's Guide to Wealth Management. So if you're a despot and you want to know how to manage your wealth, he's the guy to read. We'll also tweet links to some of the other things that he's written about this story. So let's get from there to Trump. Jason thinks that the Wilbur Ross story is basically nothing. This is how the world works and we should all get over it. And I guess there is a danger that that's becoming a pattern with some of these Trump revelations. There is so much of it. It's so bitty. The Mueller investigation has started to deliver indictments. Indictments Manafort, Gates, this guy Papadopoulos, who might or might not be a very minor player in the whole story. But I don't know, Helen, if you have a sense of this, there's a slight crying wolf problem, which is Anything with Trump is always dressed up as the big reveal. And yet each time one of these things sort of peters out in a way because a lot of people say, like Jason did, this is how the world works. Trump just seems to ride it out. I think there are several different issues going on. And I think there are possibilities that the Mueller investigation will deliver Trump some really serious problems. And of the indictments that have been made so far, it's this Papadopoulos character who conceivably, and I say conceivably because I literally don't know, might take this story in a different direction because that one, these charges are actually related to activities that he did seemingly as part of the Trump campaign and then lied about afterwards. And it's the lying that matters. Yeah, it, it depends on whether there's anything in these trips to Athens that he made and talking to the Greek defence minister about possible meetings with Putin, who knows. 
But I think the other side of it, the Manafort side of it, has been quite revealing in where it hasn't gone so far in the sense that these are charges that essentially relate to activities before Manafort and his colleague Gates joined the, the Trump campaign. It turns out that actually Manafort was under FBI investigation when he joined the Trump campaign. And they go to lobbying activity and the fact that Manafort hadn't registered his company on him himself as a an agent of a foreign government in relation to lobbying. Now, this part of the investigation is beginning to take on a bipartisan direction too because the other person who looks like he's going to get caught up in this side of it is Tony Podesta who's the brother of the former chair of Hillary Clinton's campaign and he and his brother had a, a big lobbying group Podesta group the Podesta group worked with Manafort's lobbying organization on the same kind of issues in relation to Ukraine that Manafort did and it, Tony Podesta has resigned from his position anyway uh, within the Podesta group as this investigation seems to be tightening around him too. So I think in terms of the lobbying aspects of it, this can go a long way beyond Trump because, to use Jason's phrase, this is what the world's like or this is what the world of American lobbying's like. But I think there are possibilities that could tighten around Trump more particularly if the Papadopoulos side of it goes anywhere. Because in a way, if the story is... Rich people and corporations prefer to avoid paying tax or lobbyists lobby, and that sometimes draws them into unsavoury circles. It's not clear that that's about Trump at all. No, but that's not the story, is it? It's that there's a connection. Not that Wilbur Ross was had some offshore investments and was maybe avoiding tax or whatever, but that it's connected to Russia. And legally, that might not be a problem, and it might be the way the world works. And it Probably, just from what I know, it probably has no connection to whether there's collusion in the campaign, but it it just looks bad if you can draw more or less a straight line from the Secretary of Commerce to Putin's son-in-law. But and again, to quote Jason, it's a straight line with quite a few degrees of separation. That's, that's true. Straight lines need to be straighter than that. That's true. It's not the thing that's going to bring down Trump. It's not the thing that's going to cause him the most problem, but it's another sort of drop in the bucket. It's this drip, 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 which might slip off him for now. But as this stuff keeps gathering politically, it's this impression that there's this tie between the White House and the Kremlin that eventually could have some sort of tipping point. I mean, with Watergate, which was much more... Um, much more straightforward, right? It's a burglary. And then from there, you're able to make direct links to the White House. That took two years for it to play out. So who knows where this is going to lead? I would say that the big shoe to drop is not Wilbur Ross. And it's I'm sure there's more to come uh, from Papadopoulos and some of the other people who have already been indicted from Manafort and, and from Gates. But the big shoe, I think, to drop will be Mike Flynn and his son. And the reason that Flynn is a big deal, of course, is because Trump went on national television and said, yeah, I got rid of Comey in part because of the Russia thing. And it's also known that when he met with Comey, right, he kind of told him to back off Flynn, that Flynn is a good guy, right? So this goes directly to the obstruction of justice question. So even if Trump wasn't directly involved in colluding with Russia, and I think that's a bit of a stretch, I think there's more fire than smoke at this point. Even if he wasn't, he was kind of clearly protecting people who were. So that might be where Mueller's investigation is going. I think Andrew's point, if I understand it correctly, I think it's right. The drip, drip, drip is the Wilbur Ross revelations, if you want to call them that through the Paradise Papers, don't seem like much in of themselves. They seem like something in the context of what we already know, given Manafort's connections, Page's connections, Flynn's connections, Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting, Kushner's meeting with Russian agents, and now Papadopoulos, right? So this seems to be fitting into a pattern. The other thing is, I'm not sure if Trump supporters necessarily care that much about it, but if you put a lot of weight in Trump's claim that he'd be draining the swamp and only hiring 
the best people when you were voting for them. Uh, this is just a kind of, again, another example of how that isn't exactly right, right? If by draining you swamp, you meant draining the swamp and redirecting it into the cabinet, then yes, that's precisely what he was doing. I think there's another side of this, though, as well. I agree about the, the Michael Flynn point, because if something serious comes out there in terms of legal action, then that is going to put much more pressure on Trump than the indictments that have come out so far. I think the other thing that's interesting, though, that's happened in, in the last week or so is what Donna Brazil's been saying as part of this book that she is about to publish and has been serialised in various different publications, because at the heart or not necessarily at the heart, but at the beginning, let's call it that, the beginning of the Russian narrative, the charge that Russia interfered with the election in such ways that brought about the election of Donald Trump and that there was collusion between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin in order to do that is the appearance via WikiLeaks of the DNC emails. That was the beginning of this story. And what Donna Brazil's revelations, and I mean revelations in the sense of her telling her story rather than what she's saying is necessarily true of doing is I think to cast some doubt on the claim that the Russians were responsible via a hack for the DNC emails appearing at WikiLeaks. She's kind of implying that there's a much more plausible story that actually this was an internal leak by people who were angry within the DNC about what seems to have been this fundraising agreement between the Clinton campaign and the DNC because the DNC was broke. Now, I'm not saying, I've got no idea, as I say, whether that's true or not. But I think that it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic that's been put in because it's gone back to where the beginning of this story was and offered a, a possible alternative explanation as to what went on. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Just to give a bit more context, overnight, we're talking on Wednesday morning, overnight there were elections in the United States. The Democrats won. The, the narrative in the US newspapers is Trump is, is starting to bite at the ballot box and not in a good way. Won the governorship in Virginia, won the governorship in New Jersey. And there's a sort of whole range of things that have to come together for this to spell disaster for the Trump presidency. But it was always thought that one of them was when electoral pressures start to coincide with some of these political pressures too. But on the other side of it, as you're talking, I still wonder, because we've been burnt on this, whether the old rules apply here. When we make the comparisons, whether it's with Watergate or anything else, with the ways in which at a certain point the shoe will drop and that will be the moment, are we sure that the way that politics works in 2017 there is a point beyond which there is a kind of consensus that enough is enough? There has to be at some point. Well, at some point. There at some be. point, there has to be. I hope. Well, because really? If there isn't, Are you sure? We're in, well, we're, in, we're already in uncharted waters. That's, we're already that's in, what I'm In new territory. At. And you're absolutely right. But there has to be a point at which it does stop. And it could be the Donna Brazil stuff. And who knows what else is going to come out from her book or from interviews. 
everything that I've been reading about it, none of that's illegal so far, and none of it's involving a foreign power. And if Mueller's investigation does lead to really deep ties with Russia, and it does lead to the campaign, that's illegal. And if a lot of people from Mike Flynn to Manafort to whoever, to Papadopoulos, lied to investigators, lied to lied on their disclosure forms, that's illegal. And these legal issues, they begin to spiral. So the Democrats, the DNC behaved from what Donna Brazil has been saying behaved appallingly, but that's a party, basically a private entity, sorting out its own affairs in a kind of seamy way that doesn't reflect well on the Democratic Party. But it's these legal matters could become something that's just impassable for Donald Trump. Whether these these gubernatorial elections are a bellwether for the fortunes of Trumpism, who knows, because other special elections that have been held in Alabama and in Georgia have gone well for Trump. A year into a presidency, yeah. a, a president's party doesn't manage to win a state which has swung both ways. There's really, again, there's not a huge story there. It's not. No. But on your drip, drip, drip analysis, it's another drip in the bucket. Yeah, we'll have to see what happens with the midterms. But I think year. that the president's party is a bit of a misnomer there, because I think that one of the reasons why we're in chartered territory is we kind of have a an American president who doesn't have a party, or at least has, is semi-detached from the party that he nominally represents. And the first thing that Trump did in response to the Virginia gubernatorial election was disown the candidate yeah. and say that basically he, he wasn't embracing Trumpism. Now, I don't think that actually there is a state level and in terms of both congressional elections and gubernatorial elections, there is a phenomenon that's going to transport into the future that can be called Trumpism. But at the same time, there is a real problem for the Republican Party because it's got these two things together now. It's got the old Republican Party and it's got this president who's nominally a Republican president, but in some meaningful sense isn't a Republican president. So the Democrats, in some sense, don't really have to do anything. They've just got a split. They've just got to publish their memoirs, (laughs) laying out the dirt on each other. That's... (laughs) You know, the Democratic Party has its own dysfunctions as well, right? We're living in an era where, as Julia Azari has pointed out, we have very strong partisanship and very weak parties in the United States, which is a bit bizarre. But in terms of what the elections last night mean for the Democratic Party vis-a-vis the Republicans, one thing to keep in mind is after a presidential election, the midterms swing towards the other party. That is always the case. So the question is, how much is the swing? Virginia is a state that I believe went for Clinton by a wider margin than it went for Obama vis-a-vis Romney in 2012. So in some ways, it was almost, in my mind, a must win for the Democrats. So the fact that they won it isn't necessarily a strong repudiation of Trump. I think what's interesting to look at is to see whether or not there was a swing from people who maybe voted Trump in the general election, who voted for Northam, the Democratic candidate for governor. That would be interesting. The other interesting thing to pay attention to is rates of turnout, how much are Democrats turning out, especially how much are young Democrats turning out. As I understand, the turnout was pretty high. Mm -hmm. And you might be getting into a situation for the Republican Party now, similar to what the Tories are facing in this country, where for a lot of young people, even if they're not dyed in the wool Democrats, they might be never Trumpers and therefore never Republicans, right? They might, even if Trump is a nominal Republican, the 2016 election might have indelibly, in their minds, etched the GOP as the party of Trump. And so they might have a very big loss long-term problem. Yeah, they might be never Trumpers, and they might also be actual voters as opposed to hypothetical voters, which young people sometimes are. Okay, so let's then take this to the um, international stage, because Trump is on his mega tour of Asia. He's in China today. He's done Japan. He's done South Korea. There's a lot going on there, too. While all this is going on, by Trump standards, it's been a fairly conventional 
progress. Um, he said some pretty strong things, but maybe other things have crowded it out. But there haven't been the sort of stories that sometimes you associate with these Trump ventures overseas of he said what? He did what? I mean, he, yet, tip, he tipped some fish food into a fish pond and then it turned out that Abe had tipped it in first and it was fake news. And so he's taken a strong line, but he's not said anything outrageous unless I've missed it. He's... He Depends what you mean by outrageous. I guess so. I, I mean, I haven't seen anything totally outrageous. He's being classic Trump in that he's not very competent. He's basically arguing with himself. He'll give a very conciliatory speech and then he'll give a very hardline speech and everyone is left confused. But by Trump's standards, it's been pretty smooth so far. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with the kind of incompetence thing. He reportedly told Prime Minister Abe that it would be nice if Japan would build some cars in the United States, which of course it does by the thousands. But aside from sending mixed signals, which is not new, this has not been a disastrous tour in the sense of raising eyebrows. And one of the things that it has focused people's attention on, and it's not so much anything he said this week, but the pattern of what he said, is just how comfortable he is with Xi Jinping as an ally, potentially, certainly as a kind of friend at the world leader to world leader, global hegemon level, whatever that is, he seems barely to register that there's an issue here, especially given what's happened in China recently, for America and the American president just to say this is another one of the good guys. I mean, this is very problematic from the perspective of US allies in the region, right? The United States already backed off and under Trump has now rejected the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, which had been worked out in painstaking detail under the Obama administration, only to see it be summarily rejected by all sides, not just Trump, but Hillary Clinton, who had been a major factor in getting it negotiated as Secretary of State. And this had signaled, despite the so-called pivot to Asia, to our allies in Japan and South Korea and, and Singapore and elsewhere, that we aren't exactly the most reliable partner. It also echoes what Angela Merkel said about Germany having to accept the fact that it could not always rely on others anymore, of course, referring to the United States. And so the purpose of the trip of a president to any region is, has been since 1945, really, to assure them of U.S. security guarantees. And so that's Trump's main mission. And so Doing things like sending mixed signals just, of course, adds to the uncertainty and treating China as just another country with whom we can do business could be misconstrued as saying, you know, we're going to cede influence to China in, in the region. I don't quite see it that way. I think that the tension is between him seeming to have a good relationship with Xi Jinping himself and the fact that actually the, the whole tour has been framed in a kind of anti-China way. If you look at the language that Trump himself, but also the Defence Secretary, the State Department were using, they want to reframe the language in which the US conducts its foreign policy in East Asia or in Asia more generally from Asia Pacific, when they're talking about East Asia, to this new notion that they're using of Indo-Pacific. The State Department issued a statement before he went, which is about this Indo-Pacific issue. And what it's basically saying is that they want a quartet of relations that include the United States and the United States, Japan, India and Australia. And they see this as an alternative to what China's pursuing, which is one belt, one road. And so is Trump's interest, the way that strategically, in strategic terms, the administration is talking about what's going on in this tour is framed that way. But Trump seems to have and seems to like having this quite good personal relationship with the Chinese And that goes leader. back to something we've talked about a lot before, which is primarily for Trump, 
politics, it's not just transactional, it's transactional at the personal level. Absolutely. And so it's very hard actually for him to make the leap into these broader State Department strategic... But he's himself used this language, I mean, and I think that the reason why Trump, I think, has been particularly keen on the Modi relationship is in some sense strategic, though he may also have a good personal relationship with them because India is the Asian country that is also not keen on one belt, one road because of what its implications are for Pakistan. Andrew, as a historian of, among other things, American diplomacy, go back to the old question with Trump, to what extent is he an outlier? American presidents have always on the whole thought that personal relationships, I mean, it's part of their role, right, to forge these kinds of personal relationships that might transcend some institutional barriers. When you look at this kind of political initiative, trying to make Xi Jinping think that they can do business, is it anything really out of the ordinary? Well, no, forging relations with foreign leaders, especially on a personal level, it's part of the job. And he's done that with Shinzo Abe, where they've bonded over golf and and they're both and quite fish cons- food. and fish food. And they're, they're, they're both quite conservative in, in a lot of ways. It's then whether you can follow up that summit diplomacy and that personal diplomacy with connecting it to the broader strategic considerations or ambitions that Helen was talking about. And I'm, I'm just not sure that there's any joined up thinking in the Trump administration. You know, Reagan once joked about his own often dysfunctional presidency that the right hand didn't know what the far right hand was doing and that this created a lot of chaos in in the Reagan administration. But at least Reagan, like Trump, not a master of policy detail, at least had a kind of strategic vision. And then people who worked for him knew what that strategic vision was. And when things went awry, it was when people like Bud McFarlane or John Poindexter or Casper Weinberg or whoever kind of went too far and then they had to be reined in a bit, whereas the Trump administration just seems chaos. And so the State Department might draft a pretty detailed strategic document on a new strategy in the Indo-Pacific. It's whether then Trump can follow through with that. And he has a tendency to say things that then completely not only contradict himself, he says that Tillerson's wasting his time conducting North Korean diplomacy. Then he's in South Korea saying, yes, we're working at a deal and we're talking with the North Koreans. And I'm sure that something's going to get done. And then he goes to the South Korean parliament and basically, it doesn't quite say fire and fury, but comes close to it. And what previous presidents, including Reagan, have been really good at doing is is sort of being able to some extent to match up that summit diplomacy with the actual policy implementation. And as you say, there's a familiar pattern where the president sets a tone and then occasionally some of the people who work for the president go too far and have to be reined in. The difference in this case is that the person going too far is the president. And he's reined in all the time by Mattis. He's reined in not so much by McMaster. That's really interesting. When McMaster was appointed, he seemed to be the one who would sort of like Kelly's role was when he was appointed chief of staff was to keep sort of a a leash on Trump and to and to keep him on the straight and narrow. And I'm not sure McMaster has done that. But Mattis has done that. Tillerson can't do that because he's just so weak. And McMaster is also in an awkward position because he is a general. He's uh, well, they all are except for Tillerson. But he's an active general. Right? He's oh, right, a three-star right. general, and so he's dealing with his commander in chief, which puts him in an awkward position from a civil military perspective. I, I think, though, on this one, that they're potentially in the same place because remember that um, Trump ran as an anti-China candidate or for a more confrontational China policy. He's actually run a less confrontational policy than he promised. He said he was going to deem China a currency manipulator on day one, and that didn't happen. He wants a confrontation with China about trade that hasn't yet come. But, I mean, Mattis is is the one who's actually most used this phrase about the Indo-Pacific in the last few weeks. And so I think here there is a a joined-up position. They might not agree about the details, but Trump wants a more confrontational policy with China. The people who are advising him on foreign policy do so, and they want to do it because they think that one belt, one road, and what China is doing in that respect is a threat to the interests of 
America and to some of its security partners in Asia. And it's willing, the administration seems willing to have a, a more cooperative relationship with India than has previously been the case with American presidents. So Alan, I said at the beginning that we were going to bring this round to the other big story and possibly the biggest story of all over the past week plus, which is what's going on in Saudi Arabia. And with all of these things, it's got something to do with Trump as well, right? So first of all, just just remind us what's happened and then tell us what the link is with Trump. Well, basically what happened in Saudi Arabia over the weekend is that the crown prince, who is the, the son of the, the present ageing king and the successor to the, the Saudi throne, conducted a purge of other princes in the royal family, including the, the former king's son and various business and government officials in Saudi Arabia. Meanwhile, the Lebanese Prime Minister was in Saudi Arabia. It's not entirely clear why. And while he was in Saudi Arabia, he resigned. Oh, he Would, was resigned. He was resigned, perhaps by the, the Saudi government. And then a missile went over the Saudi capital, towards the Saudi capital, which the Saudi government, particularly the Crown Prince, have blamed either on Lebanon, or the Hezbollah in Lebanon, or on Iran, or seeing those as the same thing. So you've got uh, quite a lot of, shall we say, plates spinning. And Trump's response to what happened was to send two tweets. The first of them said that he basically backed what um, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, was doing, and that he was essentially flushing out people who were soaking money out of the country. And one of He was these, draining this one. Yeah, one of these princes... Al-Walid, I think his name is, is a big investor in various American companies and who Trump had a massive Twitter spat with during the course of the election. He might be considered an opponent of Trump. And he also was sent an encouraging tweet about the Saudi oil company Aramco, which initially the Saudi government, under, again, the Crown Prince's initiative, had wanted to issue an IPO for because they need some money into this company. There had been talk about actually China buying a direct stake or at least China's sovereign wealth fund buying a stake in that company. And Trump sent a tweet encouraging the issuing of that IPO in New York. Wow. So what's the what's the real story here, do we think? Uh, from my perspective, the real story in the Middle East is one of alliance restraint or the absence thereof. So since 1945, the main goal of the United States has been to prevent war from breaking out, though obviously it hasn't always been successful. During the Cold War, the purpose of that was to prevent Soviet influence in the Middle East, because the more hostility there was, the more fighting there was, the more Soviet military assistance and technical assistance flowed into the region. But even after the end of the Cold War, you had concerns about provoking terrorism, this interfering with the international supply of oil, which even if it didn't threaten U.S. energy supplies, it threatened the global economy. Now you see a departure from that under the Bush administration, where you really have the Bush administration stirring up the pot because it thinks that it doesn't have a choice after September 11th, 2001 anymore. But the basic thinking right, about the importance of oil and the importance of maintaining at least some semblance of peace holds. Now, this does not seem to be the case under the Trump administration in that when it comes to Saudi Arabian actions, either towards other Gulf Arab states like Qatar or certainly towards Iran, because this accords with Trump's rhetoric about the nuclear deal with Iran being the worst deal ever and, and so on and so forth, he's more than happy to let these provocative actions and statements by both Saudi Arabia and Iran slide. So is he, is he the restraint isn't there. Is he tolerating them, enabling them, or actually 
actively encouraging them? I think he's enabling. I wouldn't say necessarily actively encouraging, but I don't really know. That might be splitting hairs. His son-in-law spent some happy evenings with the crown prince recently in which they apparently discussed what was going to happen. Is that not... It's hard to say. I don't know exactly what went on in no, those no, I have no talks, idea. which is why I'm settling on enabling rather than encouraging. There's certainly you know, nothing I've seen uh, that would be comparable to, say, what was happening uh, between the Nixon administration and, and Tel Aviv during the 1973 Yom Kippur War or anything like that. And again, Andrew, so we talked about so Trump and Xi Jinping. This is statesman to statesman. There's something else going on where it's kind of crown prince to kind of crown princeling, prince, princeling exactly, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. There's clearly, I mean, I would go a little further than Aaron, and although I guess we don't have any hard evidence in this, but that the Trump administration or the Trump White House is really encouraging what's going on in Saudi Arabia. And they're doing so for a number of reasons, but one of which is to put pressure on Iran, because there's a huge sectarian war that's going on that could spiral well out of control between Sunni and Shia in the Middle East that then overlaps with what the United States is doing, what Russia's doing, what Israel's doing. And the Middle East is always messy, but it could get a lot messier. But this brings us back to Asia and some of the lack of joined up thinking by siding so strongly with Saudi Arabia and pressuring Iran. And I don't think it's just the Saudis who who have convinced Trump that the Iran nuclear deal is a bad deal. But by basically telling the Iranians, even though all of our allies still want to abide, our being America's allies, want to abide by this deal, even though you're complying with the deal, saying that to the Iranians, I want to tear this up. And it's the worst deal ever. And I'm not I'm going to start slowly decertifying it. And I'm going to leave it to Congress. And and then he goes to Korea and drops these huge hints, and not for the first time, to Pyongyang that we should cut a deal. And it's in your interest to cut a deal. But why would the North Koreans cut a deal on denuclearization with a deal breaker with a deal breaker with a guy who's going to tear up a deal that they've done with Iran because the deal with North Korea would probably look a lot like the deal that they cut uh, with Iran and then of course Kim Jong-un looks to what happened to Gaddafi when he gave up his weapons program he looks at Saddam Hussein who didn't have a weapons program it's in North Korea's interest to have nuclear weapons that's probably the biggest way they can have some sort of defense but what Trump is doing in the Middle East is undercutting everything that they're going to do and making war much more possible not only in the Middle East but also and in I East would, Asia I would just quickly interject that it's not only uh, U.S. adversaries that Trump breaks deals with or criticizes deals with right? it's U.S. Absolutely. allies as well so if the United States wants to back out of or strongly renegotiate NAFTA right. despite what the U.S. auto industry actually says about it, it thinks it's been a pretty good deal with Canada what prospect does North Korea have of thinking its deals with the United States are going to be honored because Trump's the king of the deal mm, he sucks at the mm. deal he does suck mm. at the deal I think that the context is Syria. The failure of what's happened in Syria is the context of what is now happening in the Middle East. And that what we've seen in the last few weeks is the effective defeat of the caliphate that had been established in 2014. This is a a serious defeat for the Saudis. It's a serious defeat for those in the American administration, from the Obama administration through the Trump administration, who had wanted to see regime change in Syria. It's a defeat for Israel as well, that also had an interest in this. And the conclusion that the Saudis and I think probably the Israelis draw from what has now happened in Syria and the essential victory of the Assad regime with Russia's help is that Iran has won. Iranian influence that they had wanted to stop in Syria has won. So now I don't think it's a coincidence that the attention has now turned to Lebanon 
the other place that both concerns Saudi Arabia and concerns Israel for Iranian influence through Hezbollah. And then we then have over over the weekend is the Lebanese Prime Minister saying he's resigning because of the activities of Hezbollah within his coalition, because it was a, something like a 30-party coalition in Lebanon that included Hezbollah. And then we get accusations about Iran, effectively, Iran or Lebanon. I think it was ultimately it was Lebanon that the Saudis used the phrase of declaring war on. So I think in some sense, the centre of conflict is moving in the Middle East from Syria, where it's effectively not over, and certainly not for the Syrian's population who suffers under it, but in terms of the political outcome, it appears over to Lebanon. It's complicated. We started with Bono's Lithuanian shopping centre, <laughs> and we've ended up in Syria. Next week, we're going to be joined by Jan Werner Müller for a special LRB edition of Talking Politics. Jan Werner Müller has written a series of articles in the London Review of Books over the last year about many of the things we're most interested in, populism, the role of Germany in Europe, and the possible future of the European Union. So with Helen and Chris Bickerton, I'll be talking to him about that, and we will tweet links to the articles that he's written so you can see what he has to say. This week's LRB has got some interesting articles that touch on many of the things we've been talking about. Andrew Basevich has been writing about a release of State Department documents about America and Iran. Miriam Dobson is writing about Moscow 1956, The Silent Spring. Do go to lrb.co.uk to read those and many other interesting pieces too. And join us again next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Jason will say that, then we'll come to this and it'll be okay. So if that's really unless anyone wants to say there's a story there, where is the where at the moment do we think the heart think heart of the yeah. Russia story is? Save it for the podcast. Okay. Uh, and then, this wasn't about every thought on that. Next week oh, sorry. sorry about that. I didn't know we were going. Okay. <laughs> okay, sorry. They do okay. <laughs> 